0: Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online in our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message.
1: All right, I'm going to pray as we begin. Dear God, you've given us a great call this morning, a call that is difficult to even to articulate, to understand, let alone to carry out. But God, I pray that through these words this morning, you would move us closer closer to responding in faithfulness and obedience to the work to which you've called us. I pray that you would pick up my failing words this morning. Fill them with your spirit and connect them to our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Some of us this morning are homeless. Some have been homeless before. Some have been very close. Some don't have any idea what that kind of precarity might actually look or feel like. We're all proximate to those living through homelessness, whether that's because it's we who are homeless or because we pass by and through and around homelessness every day living in the city. And regardless of our level of familiarity with that reality, we are all to some degree captured by a prevailing notion or idea of what homelessness is and what it means. We've been formed into creatures that carry a worldview that, without interrogation, serves the narrative of the powerful, of those who get to construct meta-narratives who get to shape ideology and culture in ways that reinforce their own power. Fortunately, though, we can think ourselves out of these traps, but it takes work, the work of learning and of living to reshape how we think and live. The Bible is so often a source of these liberating fractures, of these breakages and breakdowns of oppressive arrangements, but it's also sometimes the source of that violence. Not because Scripture is inherently liberating or oppressing, but because of how it is disposed of by those who use it like the technology of culture that it is. As much as Scripture helps our imaginations soar into heavenly possibilities, it can also narrow our thinking so painfully and even violently. And it's always full of contradiction, as we all are, and beautiful and full of powerful potential just the same. We read one of those contradictions just now in the book of Deuteronomy. God is making a covenant with Israel, laying out the terms of that contract and charging them with the construction of a particular kind of political and economic community. And God tells them there need be no poor in the land. Because, God says, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need, not requiring any payment in return. This is the first claim. That there need be no poor in the land based on this economic pattern. But then the second claim, which is in verse 11 and not present in the reading that we just had this morning, but it goes like this. It says, There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So which is it? There need be no poor? Or there always will be. Maybe it's a simple contradiction. Maybe it's a choice. Maybe the implication is that while poverty is not a necessary feature of our world, God knows that this political body will not make the choices necessary to eliminate it. Instead, they will accumulate wealth, refuse to give away what those in need require, and so God asks for the compromise of charity rather than systemic justice. We are a people in progress, after all, and maybe this was just a concession to our weakness pending new strength. But charity should not exist, as an industrial complex, at least. Charity is a Band-Aid on a bullet wound when we need gun reform to make two points with one analogy. Charity is often interested in its own perpetuation, a site of professional benefit and corporate profit through tax avoidance and other sleights of hand. Charitable organizations rarely organize their own obsolescence. and They can actually function as a sort of pressure valve for a capitalist system that can't churn out too many dead bodies and homeless people. So there's an equilibrium that charity maintains, soaking up enough of the blood that people aren't too disturbed by the wound so that we don't feel the need to do anything too radical. But know the better world is a world in which charity isn't needed because there are no people who need charity, because everyone is provided for, protected, and safe And is that just a reality that scripture can't imagine? Is that a world that our forebears couldn't think through for us? Was that one of their limitations? Just like they couldn't imagine the full value of women, or queer and trans folks, or the abolition of of slavery, or the end of police and prisons, could they also not imagine the abolition of poverty? They get so close at these various moments, right? In this passage, they begin with the belief that there need be no poor people. Yet they end with the poor will always be in the land. In Acts 2, the early church holds all things in common, sharing everything so that no one is in need. Yet later, Paul is untangling tensions between wealthy congregants and poor parishioners. It seems that our forebears in faith have not maintained a unified and consistent commitment to the eradication of poverty, to making the sacrifices that creating balance requires. In other words, Jesus again tells us to sell all we have and give it to the poor, and we continue to refuse. We will give what doesn't endanger our comfort. We will give what we have to spare. We will give in ways that don't compromise the stability of a system that produces a hierarchical class structure. And there is a fatalism that sustains these politics. A belief that the world is the kind of thing that requires poverty. As painful as we might find it personally, but that's just the way of things. We're doing our best. The system we have is the best that could exist. We can continue to tinker with it and make it better. Isn't that enough? Well, I believe that Christians cannot be fatalistic. Christians cannot give in to the presumptions of a world that is not practiced in dreaming. That does not understand what heaven on earth might mean that refuses to give itself to the mystical practice of remaking humanity and refashioning the world, which is our charge, as people made in the image of God, which is God's loving and creative capacity that drives unceasingly towards justice. Tell me this system is the best our theology has to offer. Listen to this, since we're focusing on homelessness this morning. There are over half a million homeless people in our country and 16 million empty homes. This disparity can be measured on an individual scale that lays bare this monstrous injustice. In the hubs of homelessness, which are our cities, we have to think in terms of the hundreds of homes per individual homeless person. United Way lists the various cities. There are 88,000 rent-stabilized apartments vacant in our city and 85,000 homeless people. There's a surplus of empty units, unused, hoarded by real estate management firms that see housing not as a basic necessity that we should all share and have a right to, but a source of profit, even if that means someone else is on the street. The disparity is even greater elsewhere as places like Detroit have 116 empty houses per homeless person. Baltimore, which has 46 per person, or Syracuse, which has 110 per person. But this profit motive drives firms to collect basic resources and hold them for ransom, a ransom that the poor cannot pay. You don't even have to be in an especially bad spot to struggle paying for housing. Nearly 80% of New Yorkers are quote-unquote housing burdened, which means that over 30% of their income goes to rent. And we have debt from school and medical bills and low-paying jobs and mental health issues. And if even one protective piece were out of place, we'd be without a home too. And some of us are. But we should be able to imagine, as Christians filled with the spirit that created the universe, we should be able to imagine a world in which the basic necessities are not hoarded by the wealthy, but shared by all. Ending homelessness would, co- would cost $20 billion. Jeff Bezos spent $5.5 billion for four minutes in space and came back to $205 billion without touching the problem of homelessness. Eight people own as much wealth as 40% of the global population. Eight people as much as billions. You don't accumulate that much wealth because you're a hard worker. I know hard workers, and they face far more precarity than even those who have cushy jobs and financial security. No, you make that much wealth because you make use of a system that extracts the value workers create from them and receive it for yourself as profit. Scaled up over billions of bodies being wrung dry of their productivity, continents being carved clean of their resources by corporate military intervention, and subjecting those exploited bodies and countries to the extractive instruments of financialized capital, through debt bondage, blockades, and disciplinary tariffs, means that the world is organized by these flows of accumulation, gathering into the accounts of the wealthy while the poor go hungry and homeless. The system was not ordained by God. As much as the colonial clerics have tried to convince us otherwise, God did not sanctify the profit motive. God put us in the garden and asked us to share what was common to all of creation. God put the Israelites in the land and asked them to share what was common to all of creation. God put Jew and Gentile into the church and asked them to share what was common to all of creation. The world is full of beautiful things, full of the things that we all need to survive. There is enough. And when all is held in common, when we share this abundance, we can be whole together. I have a name for this belief that the life-sustaining things God created were not made to be commodified, but to be held in common by all. I call it commonism. Commonism is not just this belief, but a commitment to practice and protect this joint inheritance. Communism guards against those that would interrupt the natural distribution of all things to all people by those intent on hoarding resources that ought to be shared. Communism is a political, theological, and moral commitment to the flourishing of all people, rejecting the ideologies that would justify the dispossession of any of God's children. Through colonialism, Imperialism, racism, sexism, queer, or transphobia. Communism accepts no logic that results in the disinheritance of one of God's children from their right to be sustained by the creation that God gave them. Communism leaves no room for borders to circumscribe the boundaries between the wealthy and the poor. Those lines disintegrate into a wash of common humanity. But if we are to become communists, how do we rewire our brains and our spirits to become people who don't blame the suffering, those suffering the vicissitudes of a vicious system for their own suffering? How do we unlearn the victim blaming that pervades so much of our cultural discourse about poverty and homelessness and the mental health and substance use battles that are so often conjoined? How do we sharpen our analysis so that we can lay blame for our problems at the feet of the appropriate party? I think we begin with relationships. We begin by learning the real stories of real people that are struggling against systems of powerful violence and exploitation, and Jesus gave us this pattern. He spent his time with the poor, as the poor, and asks us to do the same. In our Matthew 25 text, he reminds us that if we fail to feed and clothe the hungry, to be in real community and solidarity with them, we fail to do so to him. This isn't just a moral belief or political conviction about the moral value of the poor and our responsibility to them. It's about what we do with our bodies, where we place them, what we do with the money that we make with them, how we dispose of the resources we might hoard for ourselves when others have need of them. Being in community with the poor is a liturgical practice. It's an act of worship to the God that we encounter in the poor. When we serve them, we serve God. Being in community with the poor is pedagogical. It's instructive. It teaches us how to be Christian by shaping our spirits and our character into conformity with Christ's prerogatives. To say that the poor matter and to do nothing to alleviate their poverty is to be like the demons who say that Christ is Lord and yet do not worship him. James 2, 18 through 19 says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You say you have faith, but where are your deeds? None of us in here are capitalists. Some might be committed to the system of capitalism, But none of you are hoarding the means of production, so definitionally you are not the capitalist. Petit bourgeois, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't have that level of wealth to give away. So what can we do to build towards this communistic world where all things are held by all? We can approach this call to be with the poor, to be shaped by them, to become them like Jesus did. And we have a ministry through which we can do precisely that. We care for the needs of our homeless neighbors. We invest in relationship with them and intend to ameliorate the conditions of their lives in the ways that we can. And in return, we are reminded of the reality that creates poverty and are charged with the obligation to imagine beyond it, to build into a world where there are no homeless because housing isn't hoarded, where there are no hungry because food is freely given, where the sick receive care because healing our neighbor is our obligation, where democracy can't be co-opted by oligarchs, where systems of anti-blackness are defanged by a new symmetry of economic power, where creation no longer groans under the strain of overproduction, and on and on and on. There need be no poor in the land. There need be no poor in the land, God says, calling us to be poverty abolitionists. God alludes to this apocalyptic possibility. It's up to us to pick up the vision, to make it practical and make it real. So let's begin where we can, among the poor. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com/slash-first-church-brooklyn, all one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.